Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are on creatures that are land creatures, day six. And I want to encourage everybody to turn to Genesis chapter one. And we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 25. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after their kind, and it was good. God saw that it was good. So the text itself talks about, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle after their kind, creeping things after their kind, and beasts of the earth after their kind. So God made, there are three categories that are specifically described in the text. The first category are called cattle. Uh, All Hebrew scholars say that cattle is a word that specifically refers to those animals that have been or could be domesticated. The second category is creeping things. So you have uh, cattle, then you have creeping things. And creeping things are generally those animals that are not domesticated, uh, animals with short legs, with bellies that are not far from the ground, insects, rodents, snakes, amphibians, and the like. Uh, That's described in Leviticus 1.29 as generally the unclean animals. So you have a combination of things, the mole, the mouse, uh, lizards, reptiles. uh, And the third category talked about in this section are beasts of the earth, uh, generally four-legged animals of some size that are generally not tame. That includes elephants, hippos, and the like. Now, of course, elephants, especially Indian elephants, can be tamed in a certain measure. Uh, so, but generally, it's talked about for beasts of the earth or beasts of the field that are not tame. Now, we're going to notice some other things from this, from this text. <clears throat> the first is that uh, it's all at once, all at once. There is no progression. Uh, the three were simultaneously made because if you look at verse 24 in your text cattle creeping things beasts of the earth some may say ah the cattle came first and out of them created evolved the creeping things and out of them evolved the beasts of the earth but there's a problem with that because if you look at verse 25 it's in reverse order so the mixing of the order is a very good way to indicate that there is no progression but instead they were created simultaneously. They weren't progressing from one another. You know, and they're, they're even discovering more. We've talked about this so far. Over 500 different types of sea creatures were discovered last year alone. Um, and that just continues to go on. We have not really begun to scratch the depth of God's creativity in incredible design. Well, The next phrase that's there is the earth brought forth or God made. And verse 24, it's the earth brought forth. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say, let the earth bring forth? Well, I think it's just another way of saying, let them appear on the earth. But it's also true that the bodies of animals are composed of the same elements of the earth. The bodies of animals are composed of the minerals and materials of earth. They are living and then they die and their bodies decompose and are assimilated back into the earth. They're made of the same components, the same elements, and even true of man. God personally, intimately formed man out of the dust of the earth. So the same components that were made of the earth, God made the animals, 
God formed man, the same building blocks. The next phrase is important, that there is a distinction of living creatures. Now, when he brought them forth, they are called living creatures. And that's a very important concept. Plants are never called living creatures. Trees are never called living creatures. Vegetation or herbs in verses 11 and 12 are distinct. They're separated from living creatures. You can train a plant to grow on stakes, but that's artificially training it. You're physically remote. Uh, has anybody ever seen a picture of espalier? Espalier is a way of training a fruit tree to grow against a wall. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's very hard to accomplish. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Uh, so it's really neat if you only have a little bit of garden space and you want to have a flat fruit tree, you could do that. Like next to uh, one of your outbuildings, you could do that. That would be a pretty slick thing to do, but it's a lot of work. But you don't really train plants to move toward the sun. That's phototrophism. That's normal. You have geotrophism so that if you were to take a plant that's normally growing upright vertically and you lay the pot down so that's horizontal, what's going to happen to the plant? The plant's going to grow up, all right? That's geotrophism. It's going to move, you know, opposite the force of gravity. But they are not conscious. They're not living creatures. They are not self-conscious. They, living creatures can respond to their environments. You can train a dog. You can train other animals. And they can respond to their environments. Even Shamu the whale was trained to jump up in the air 20 feet, touch a ball, and receive some food, receive a reward. But plants are not living creatures. And notice also in the text you'll find that they're described as after their kind. There is limited variation. As a matter of fact, in that passage you have after their kind three times. But you have it 10 times in Genesis 1. After their kind, after their kind, after their kind. The phrase after their kind indicates that there is a limitation of variation. We can't say that it means species or genus or family or phyla. It is part, you know, it's not part of the scientific terms of categorization that we superimpose upon the creation story. In each case, there is a genetic code. In each case, there is DNA, a chromosomal strip that is coded in every cell of every living thing that determines the living thing's nature. And it will be true to its nature. It can be varied within that complex code, but it cannot become something other than what it is. This is controlled by the DNA, and it's implied that there's limitation. You know, Current evolutionary theory states plant life began colonizing Earth 500 million years ago during the Cambrian period, around the same time as the emergence of the first land animals. But we see in Genesis, you see plants being created first, vegetation being created first, and then was the creation of sea creatures, the air creatures, and the land creatures. But the best we can say about every kind is that it possesses a limitation of variation. God created those creatures the way they are. Dogs are dogs. Horses were horses. Dolphins are dolphins. Barracuda, barracuda. Ants are ants. And they're all, you know, there's a wide variety of each of those that I've just mentioned, but there are limitations on that variety. One doesn't evolve into the other. And that's repeated 10 times in Genesis 1. As if God knew somebody would come, <laughs> somebody would come along and challenge that and try to tell a lie about one kind becoming another kind with no and no limitation on variation existing. 
The other phrase that's important for us in this text is, and it was so. At the end of verse 24, the phrase, and it was so. We've heard that before. When God did it, it was so. And that's an important little phrase. It's just not thrown in there to fill space. It occurred back in verse 9. It was so. It occurred back in verse 11. It was so. Back in verse 15. It was so. And here in verse 24, it was so. It means it was fixed. It was firm. It was permanent. And that's the way it stayed. Now, when God first created the earth, it was a mass of elements completely engulfed in water. God doesn't say it was so because it wasn't in its permanent state. In the same way, light was created, but it wasn't attached to the heavenly bodies, to the stars and the suns. He did not say it was so. Afterwards, when they were created, then he said it was so. So that permanence is indicated by that phrase. And also, of course, the phrase, it was very good. It was perfect. It was complete. He designed it the way he wanted it designed. Well, as we think about this, I'm going to shift now to specific consideration of those animals that were created to be on the land. Let's look at one example. The dogs. Designing man's best friend has obscured knowledge of the original domestic dog. And here you see a picture of the wide variety of existing breeds that are on the earth today. Evolutionary biologist Gregory Larson of Durham University examined genetic data from over 1,300 dogs representing 35 breeds along with DNA from the gray wolf, which is presumed to be the modern ancestor of the original type of dogs. Well, he says there's not much that we can know about dog domestication because they have been so interbred by man. As a matter of fact, the fact is that crossbreeding has affected all known breeds and it was reproductive isolation that made some breeds appear to be ancient. After comparing genomic information to archaeologic data, this evolutionist and his team concluded that modern breeds depicted on pyramids and in ancient texts really are not ancient. Bottom line, a dog is a dog. There are different kinds within the dog kind. There are different variations. But guess what, boys and girls? They're all dogs. So the same one that rips up your pillow, and when you find it, puts a guilty look on its face, the one that steals your sandwich off the coffee table, it's the same type of animal that existed in the garden. Of course, while doggy diversity is a good illustration of variation within the kind, the diversity attainable within the canine genome and its mutations is remarkable. A variety of genetic changes that occur in small populations affected by genetic bottlenecks have combined to produce the dogs we see today. This bears no relationship whatever to notions about evolution of one kind of creature into another, despite the fact that some evolutionary thinkers misuse the illustration as an interesting demonstration of evolution at work. Or they think that the different types of dogs show that without a doubt evolution is true. 
Change within a created kind is not evidence for evolution of one kind changing into a new kind because such new kinds would require what? New genetic information. And there's, it's, that's totally different than just a reshuffling of existing genetic DNA information. Evolutionists have never provided us with a proven biological mechanism pr for producing new genetic information. Mutations have resulted in a loss of genetic information within certain groups of dogs and have not provided the information for dogs to evolve into non-dogs. And that breeding has caused problems. We had a dog, Gromit, named after the character in Wallace and Gromit, and he was a great 110-pound golden retriever. We loved the daylights out of him. But we had him checked for hip dysplasia and heart issues, which can affect that breed. Hip dysplasia, blindness, deafness, heart defects, skin problems, and epilepsy are the cause of the breeding that we have done to create the different breeds we have today. No evolution in molecules to man sense was required to produce dog diversity, and such evolution has never been demonstrated by the study of fossils or living creatures. Let's move to bears. Bears. Here's an adorable picture of two cubs and a mama bear. Generally, when bears are very young, they bear them in pairs. Every new year, the onslaught begins again. You may actually be receiving advertisements. Some of you who are <clears throat> uh, more mature may hear about silver sneakers and your ability to join various health clubs, gyms, based on your supplemental plans to Medicare. Well, as for gyms, aerobic exercise fads, workout gear, flood, social media, billboards and commercials, everywhere you look are reminders of your resolution to get in shape and stay healthy. Well, and if you put in the work, you can see results. After all, God designed our bodies to respond to exercise by increasing our lung capacity and strength of our muscles. In a few weeks without exercise, though, we lose muscle strength and memory. Well, my memory is going, plus must my muscle memory is going too. But being confined to a bed is even more problematic with atrophy setting in quickly. So, while you see a wonderful picture of me here without my shirt on and my exquisite long beard, I need exercise. So obviously, this is not a picture of me. But the bear that's sucking on the salmon there on the weight bench doesn't need exercise. That's amazing. How can the bear not need exercise? I mean, gracious, it retreats into a cave for five to seven months, gives birth, nurses its young, it comes out and it's ready to defend the young. How in the world is it possible that God designed this creature in such a way that it doesn't need to go down to Planet Fitness? Well, the female polar bear builds and enters her den in October. She has put on 400 pounds of fat, and that fat will fuel her body to be able to not only give birth, but also to nurse two cubs during that five-month period of time. And she will not become dehydrated. That fat will break down not only to provide nourishment for her young, 
but also keep her body in a state of hydration. In addition, instead of her muscles atrophying, there is a design that God created within the polar bear and all bears to isometrically, simply by tensing up the muscles, on a regular basis, the muscles so that when the bear erupts from hibernation, the bear is as strong as when it went in. Now, it's hungry. Interestingly enough, the bear does not excrete during that time period. The bodily fluids are actually recycled within the polar bear to provide milk and lactation for her young. How could this have happened by chance? This is an incredible design that God has provided for us to see and reflect. Even the polar bear's coat. The polar bear's coat is, see, do I have a picture here? No? Yep, on the bottom right. <clears throat> Here's a polar bear emerging from the den with two cubs. The polar bear's coat, it's translucent. It looks white because it reflects all spectrum of light, but it's also hollow to keep the bear warm. It's just astonishing that these things just happen to fall into place by mutations when we generally know that all mutations are generally harmful and not beneficial. So what other animals can we talk about? Well, you could talk about birds. Birds do not need exercise. As a matter of fact, if you cause a bird to be exercised, it will lose muscle strength. It will become exhausted. Birds are normally flying about. Now, birds in captivity that are not able to fly as often, there's a barnacle geese that the study has been done on to demonstrate that the bird needs to fly around. So if you have birds in your home, occasionally let them out of their cage, let them fly around. You'll have to clean up after them, of course, unless you've been able to train one of these conscious living beings. But they need to do that. Even fish. Fish that, are, that find their environment in a living stream rather than in a stagnant pond are going to be able to stay stronger because God designed their bodies to move. Humans are made to move. Consistent exercise definitely does our bodies good. Even Adam had a job to do prior to the fall. God designed us to do our fair share of muscle building work with healthy bodies that were not impacted by the curse. Even evolutionists would agree that we humans are built to move as opposed to the great apes and chimpanzees that don't hit the weight bench. They have healthy hearts and live to decades-long lives without that need to move to the same extent that we are designed to move. So how can we, as the supposed ancestors of ape-like forms, how have we gotten to that point? There's a disconnect. Well, I'd like to talk about another land creature, the horse. The horse. And a lot of you have seen this very depiction of the horse in your textbooks and the so-called evolution of the horse, where the horse was evolved. You may have heard the question, how can the Bible be true if the, if 
Life has evolved over millions of years. Evolution is a fact. Look what happened to the horse. Now, if you ask what happened to the horse, you'll be told something along this line. Well, over a period of 60 million years, it's grown from being a small fox-like animal, only two foot tall, to the modern-day horse that stands more than six feet high, and it's lost all of its toes also. So, if the Kentucky Derby was run about 60 million years ago, it would probably be more like a dog race. Little rabbit out front. <clears throat> well, the horse series that you see on your handout and on the screen is often provided as a depiction of and proof of evolution. The number of toes in the foreleg and hind leg supposedly decreased as the horse evolved and the size supposedly increased from a small dog-like horse to a large mar modern horse. Yet, three-toed horses and horse fossils, I should say, have been found with one-toed horse specimens, showing they lived at the same time. You see a picture here of a fossil uh, horse that's a small creature. Horse hysteria started around 1841 when the earliest so-called horse fossil was discovered in clay around London. The scientist who unearthed it, Richard Owen, found a complete skull that looked like a fox's head with multiple back teeth. There was no connection to that and a horse at that time. In 1874, 33 years later, another scientist, Kowalewski, attempted to establish a link between that small fox-like fossil and, he said it was about 70 million years old, and the modern horse. Then, in another five years, a fossil expert from America, Marsh, joined up with a fellow, Thomas Huxley. You remember that name? Darwin's bulldog. <clears throat> And they produce a schematic, which is what you see here on the screen and in your handout. Uh, that schematic was published for a public lecture in New York. So that showed the so-called development of the front and back feet, the legs and the teeth of the various stages of the horse. Well, is that scheme proposed by Huxley and Marsh true? The simple answer is no. And there are several reasons why it's a no. First. There are no early horses in the deepest rock strata. If it were true, you would expect to find the earliest small horse fossils in the lowest rock strata. But you don't. In fact, bones of the supposed earliest horses have been found at or near the surface. Sometimes they are found right next to modern horse fossils. Second, scattered fossil fragments. The fragments that are supposed to illustrate this so-called evolution have never been found on the same continent. They are scattered all over the world, which begs the question, how did they get there if they moved from one to another? Third, ribs. Let me see here. There we go. Scattered fossil and ribs. There we are. Ribs, vertebrae, and toes. The numbers don't add up. The theory of horse evolution has very serious genetic problems to overcome. How do we explain the variations in the numbers of ribs, lumbar vertebrae within the imagined evolutionary progression. For example, the number of ribs in the supposed intermediate design stages of horse varies from 15 to 19 and then finally settles down at 18 in a modern horse. The number of lumbar vertebrae also allegedly swings from 6 to 8 and then goes back to 6 again. You, you can't have it both ways, folks. Toes, ribs, vertebrae, something. It's variation in size. 
variation in size is another issue. When evolutionists assume that horse has grown progressively in size over a million of years, what they forget is that modern horses vary enormously in size. The largest horse today is the Clydesdale, the smallest is the Falabella, and here's an example of both of them. You see on the screen a picture of Big Jake, who stood over seven foot tall, and Thumbelina, who was 17 inches tall. So you have a problem saying that one evolved into another, the number of ribs, the number of vertebrae, the number of toes changed. So let's talk a little horse sense, shall we? Why do science textbooks continue to see the horse as a prime example of evolution when the whole schema is demonstrably false? Why do they continue to teach our kids something that is not scientific? Well, Dr. Niles Eldridge, curator of the American Museum of Natural History, said this, and this is on your handout. I admit that an awful lot of imaginary stories have gotten into the textbooks as though it were true. For instance, the most famous example still on exhibit downstairs in the American Museum is the exhibit on horse evolution prepared perhaps 50 years ago. That has been presented as literal truth in textbook after textbook. Now this curator says, now I think that that is lamentable. Take it down. That same exhibit is in the London Museum of Natural History. The National Geographic magazine showed an amazing picture. And it's a picture, um, let me go back a few pictures here. That's not the right way. Let's go the right way. Here we go. That small picture of the fossil, <clears throat> there was a series in National Geographic magazine which talked about the evolution of the horse, Eohippus. And in that evolution of the horse, one of the problems was that you had a picture of fossils that had one toe and three toes in the same fossil. But yet, the caption read, an evolutionary moment is frozen in time. Complete skeletons of the horse Philohippus verify the transition of primitive three-toed variety to the one-toed uh, one type 10 million years ago. They were frozen at the same time. <laughs> it's right there in front of you. There was no change. There's a presuppositional bias. And that's what's creating it. Well, let's look at another thing, shall we? How about bugs, insects? We'll examine two of the creatures brought into existence on day six, the bombardier beetle and peppered moth. How many of you have heard of the bombardier beetle? I love this bug. This is great. In 1903, the Wright brothers succeeded with controlled powered flight because they asked the right questions. How do birds use their wings? Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, wondered how we could hold a computer in the palm of our hand. He succeeded with the iPhone because he asked the right question. History is filled with engineers who asked the right question, from airplanes to smartphones. We couldn't imagine our lives without these modern inventions. One scientist and engineer, Dr. Andy McIntosh, you see his handsome face there, has asked important questions about this insect whose explosive tendencies have inspired research and discoveries all pointing to the creator. His question was, how can this be? 
In 2001, Dr. McIntosh was sitting in his office at Leeds University in England, where he had been conducting research for 15 years, and he'd continue for another 10 years. While reading a copy of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, he noticed an article about the Bombardier Beetle. You see a picture there in the upper right-hand corner of this little beetle spraying somebody's finger. So imagine this scenario. A toad is searching for a tasty morsel and spies a little beetle on a leaf. And before he can stick his tongue out, <clears throat> he is blasted with water that is boiling hot and filled with caustic chemicals. There, boys and girls, you have the Bombardier Beetle. There's nothing like it in nature, and any sensible person knows that a tiny beetle, less than an inch in size, could never produce a controlled explosion by accident. It shouts that there is an intelligent creator. Well, these beetles are all over the globe. They're on multiple continents, and there are two types. There's the exploding type. Uh, we have the exploding type in Africa. Uh, that was uh, studied by Dr. Uh, McIntosh and Dr. Eisner. There's another one in North America. That's another exploding one, so be on the lookout for those. And then, of course, you have the non-exploding varieties uh, that either produce a hot foam or a spray that live in North America or India, respectively. Well, these gentlemen continued their research and found some fascinating things. And he wasn't interested in the Bombardier beetle uh, like a biologist might be. He was interested in the engineering and physics. As those who believe in creation, we know that God made the sophisticated, sophisticated chemical system, including specialized chemicals that make the reaction go faster, along with a combustion chamber, a movable exhaust turret, more versatile than a tank, turret since the beetle can aim it in any direction, inlet and exhaust valves, and a sensory mechanism to determine from which direction the attack may be com coming. Andy McIntosh wondered if it were possible that the God of creation had designed and implemented some unique engineering solutions to miniaturized explosion that human industry might learn from and imitate. That's called biomimicry for the good of fellow man. Well, for six years, he worked on this. Uh, and to his surprise, some of the biologists that he conferred with were stunned as to why he would even bother. They said things like, well, what do you hope to learn since the beetle is still evolving? <laughs> uh, guys, it's a scientist's job to question and to wonder and to research. That, that's, that's the job. And he said, I am interested in discovering how things work. I knew the master designer designed animals. I expected to discover some new insights into combustion and engineering. That's his field of expertise, expertise, by the way. Rather than being a hindrance, my belief in God's creation opened a new research field. It was precisely because I believed in creation that I was spurred to ask the right questions. So he reached out to the author of that paper that he was reading. And they got together and started working on understanding even more. The biologists had known for a long time that the beetle had an inlet valve controlling the flow of chemicals into the reaction chamber where the explosion occurs. And on your paper and in front of you here, you have a very basic description of what's happening. Uh, on the left-hand side, you see that there are uh, secretory lobes. Uh, they enter into the reservoir uh, where things are mixed and there's a chemical reaction that occurs. And then you see the valve here 
that opens into what is called the reaction or explosion chamber. And then at the bottom, you'll see the secondary valve. Well, it was through the use of the scanning electron microscope that they found the secondary valve. Dr. Eisner had uh, access to one in his laboratory, and they were delighted to discover that that valve would allow the chemicals to stay intact and react in a protected environment without blowing the beetle apart. The beetle's basic chemical cocktail has long been known, hydrogen peroxide. You may have some in your medicine cabinet, right? And hydroquinone. You ever heard of hydroquinone? You may have heard of something similar concerning COVID treatment, just, just saying. And scientists know that these chemicals don't react without a catalyst. And surprise, surprise, guess what the Bombardier beetle had within its chemical makeup? These catalysts. <laughs> it had both catalase and peroxidase. So the chemical peroxide uh, <clears throat> joins up in the, in the beetle's reaction chamber uh, with catalase, breaks down the hydrogen peroxide to water and oxygen. And here's where we get into chemistry 201, organic chemistry, <clears throat> and heat. Now, how the beetle produces and stores the catalyst is still a mystery. The bleaching agent is common in skin products to lighten skin in the beetle's reaction chamber. The catalyst release, release hydrogen. The hydrogen then combines to initiate a runaway steam explosion with the free oxygen. And here's a critically important question. How much will turn into steam before the concoction is released as an explosive spray? Well, the wonder of the design of this this explosive chamber here, pictured at the bottom of the diagram, is that this chamber is designed to encapsulate the materials above the boiling point of water. It's called superheated. You have pressure cookers that will heat water up to such a temperature and cook quickly without the loss of moisture. This little bug has that. <laughs> it's amazing. And so you have this controlled chemical reaction that is released at just the right time at 221 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the minute it hits air, it turns into steam, and it can go up to about 500 cycles per second. It's repeated. It's like a machine gun. It's not just one continual squirt. It's repeated, and it's amazing. So this is called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. The beetle cannot blast predators unless all of its parts are present and working together. Now, back in the 70s, creationists latched onto the Bombardier beetle as the premier example of irreducible complexity even before that term was created in the 1996 book Darwin's Black Box, which refuted much of Darwin's theories. Irreducible complexity refers to a system in which all the parts must be present and working together or else the system fails. Just as a mousetrap won't snap shut unless all the pieces are working together, this beetle cannot blast predators unless all of its parts are present 
and working together. All the parts had to be working from the start, not as a product of step-by-step construction. Andy McIntosh would say, in every respect, the Bombardier Beetle is irreducibly complex because the system will not work unless you have the chemistry right, the catalyst right, the inlet valve right, and the outlet valve right. Not to mention that the reaction chamber must be there to begin with or else the beetle will blow itself to bits. Well, the Bombardier Beetle Blaster is so sophisticated in the way it senses and responds to danger, producing chemicals on demand. The reaction that follows, scientists still don't fully understand how all the parts work. Andy was able to work together with some mechanical and chemical engineers <clears throat> to create some equipment that would basically do the same and prove their theories and their observations about the Bombardier Beetle. He and Dr. Eisner were awarded by the London scientific community for their research and development. As a matter of fact, as a result of this work, there have been improved firefighting equipment and means developed. So the biomimicry that Dr. McIntosh first was after was proven to be successful. And in addition, work continues on utilizing God's design for man's benefit. So. Let's talk about another insect. And again, this is another example of where presuppositional biases can affect our research and our conclusions. You probably have all heard of the peppered moth. The presupposition is that before the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of moths were of the typica or light variety. And this is in England. As England became more powered by coal and landscape descended into sooty Dickensian bleakness, there was a major shift. As trees blackened with soot, the carbonaria, or the dark variety of moth, came to predominate. Then, once the air cleaned up, the distribution of variation shifted back, and the typical, or the light variety moths, were once again more common. Well, Dr. Kettlewell published results in his 1955 experiment on natural selection in peppered moths in Birmingham, England, concluding that birds act as selective agents, as postulated by evolutionary theory, and that industrial melanism that was the most striking evolutionary change ever, ever actually witnessed in any organism. So, if these white moths would go on the sooty black trunks of a tree. They were obviously evident and available for the birds to pick off. But then when things cleaned up, you had the reverse. The black moths were very available. So they changed in terms of their coloration. Well, unfortunately, it seems that the classical example of natural selection is actually an example of unnatural selection. Peppered moths don't rest on tree trunks. They reside in the upper canopy. 
They reside on the leaves. And it poses a serious problem for the classical explanation of industrial melanism in peppered moths. In recent years, it became clear that the evidence on which the story hangs is as flimsy as a butterfly's wings. Kettlewell's experiments proved nothing. Kettlewell went into the woods knowing the results he wanted, and he didn't quit until he got them. The experiment was done under highly artificial conditions. Laboratory-bred moths were put on trees in unnatural positions and at the wrong time of day. Kettlewell himself decided which moths were safely concealed from birds and which were not. He, also, he was so adept in the field that even his critics might say he could think like a moth, but nobody believed he could see like a bird. Ted Sargent, an emeritus professor of biology at the University of Mass Amherst, was Kettlewell's severest critic. Sargent didn't suggest that Kettlewell lied or cheated. In Kettlewell's desperation to succeed and to please the scientific community, he might simply have seen what he wanted to see. Ted Sargent said, there are subtle ways to seduce yourself. Well, the characters in the tragic tale were among Britain's most brilliant scientists. Well, what can we say? How do we conclude? And I think I have this on your handout. On the sixth day of the creation week, God created amazing land-based animals specifically suited for their environment. These show the awesome intellect and brilliance of our Creator. Unfortunately, for those who reject the supernatural model described in Genesis, those presuppositions can and will lead to erroneous conclusions that are propagated for many years, even if they are disproven. Professing to be wise, they became fools, can summarize the end of those who reject God's revelation and seek to replace it with their own imaginations. Questions? Yes, Shelley. A great question, and thank you, because it does help to uh, clarify the issue. Uh, when people use the term evolution, they're normally thinking of macroevolution, where one kind will morph into another kind. Microevolution, where there are very small, subtle changes within a kind or a species or a family, is generally seen as a slight change. Now, in the case of the moth, the peppered moth, you actually had both moths existing, the light-colored moth and the dark-colored moth. And what you saw, you know, there is a reality that says if a bird can see a light-colored moth on a dark background, it's going to eat those. If the bird cannot see a dark-colored moth on a dark background, it's not going to eat those. 
So that would be more of a matter of selection, natural selection, where a creature was naturally selected. Unfortunately, with the peppered moth illustration, which continues to this day even in our textbooks, you find that the experiment itself was slanted. It was artificially set up and did not fully illustrate any of the points, whether it would be evolution, macroevolution, or natural selection. Instead, it was unnatural selection. So, I hope that's helpful. Yeah. 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 And in terms of microevolution, a lot of people would look at the varieties within the dog kind as an example of what they would interpret to be microevolution, when it's really just the variation that exists. You know, the fact that we have people with blonde hair, blue eyes, and some people that have, well, like myself, less hair every day, or, you know, brown eyes or green eyes, that's a variation. And it's something to be celebrated and, you know, enjoyed as to, you know, how God created this diversity. Other questions? Microevolution, yeah, can be indeed true science. Um, you know, again, I think we need to be very careful, you know, whether it was Ketterwell's experiment or the experiments of Dr. McIntosh, you know, you need to let the evidence be thoroughly understood and not superimpose your presuppositions upon them. Other, go ahead. Yeah, every time you isolate and that's within a kind. Yeah. Every every time you isolate a specific gene, you risk the danger of losing certain benefits. The Sharpe, for example, has a horrible skin condition that must be, you know, treated, you know, continually. They're beautiful dogs and you know. Any other questions? Observations? All right, there'll be a uh, there'll be a quiz next week. No, there won't. Uh <clears throat> Next week, Lord willing, we'll have uh, classes from middle school on up join us, and those classes uh, will join us specifically on dinosaurs, which were part of day six creation. So we're going to have a video uh, that our team in the back will display for us, uh, talking about dinosaurs, dragons, and how we understand them from a biblical perspective. So. Kim and I are going to be out in deepest, darkest New Jersey visiting some dear friends uh, as we celebrate uh, the anniversary of someone who's retiring from the fellowship that we were a part of there. And uh, we'll miss you all, but Lord willing, we'll be back uh, the week after. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time. We thank you for the incredible beauty of your created order. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look at your creation through an appropriate and honest lens that we would not be guilty of 
misinterpreting you, your world, and the beauty that we see around us. Instead, Lord, help us to celebrate who you are and how you have designed us and all we see around us. Father, we do pray that you would help us to countermand the corruption of the fall, that we would look for ways to be a blessing to others like Dr. McIntosh was searching with regard to the Bombardier Beetle. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who love you, who want to know more of you. Lord, we pray that as we gather with your people to worship in song and hearing your word, that our hearts would be affixed and focused upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and he who holds all things together as creator by the word of his power. Amen.